Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, my name is Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Professor Stephen Chu. He's a professor of physics and physiology at Stanford University. He's also a Nobel Prize winner in physics from 1997 and he was the first Secretary of Energy under President Barack Obama, the second, of course, being Ernie Moniz, our guest on episode 17 of Cleaning Up. Professor Chu is also the chair of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Chu to Cleaning Up. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us on Cleaning Up. Good to be here. <laughs> In, in your honor, I've got my nuclear physics mug. Can you see that? It's yes, got the, I can. the atom on one side, and yes. on the other side, it's got all these subatomic particles. And a few molecules, yes. And yes, mesons, pro yes. <laughs> can, can you see that? Yeah. Yes, yes. Protons, neutrons, yes. Yeah, it's got gluons and uh, and and uh, up quarks and down quarks, all sorts of things there. But uh, which is the kind of the point at which I fade out, because as you know, I'm an engineer, but I was more a mechanical engineer. So uh, uh, we'll get into some of that maybe. But um, well, if we could start, perhaps, um, what are you up to? Uh, because I visited with you about a year and a half ago before COVID and uh, fascinating stuff you were doing. But how is what's taking your time right now? Well, it's a mixture of things. On the university research side, it's, it's, that too is a mixture. As you may know, since I, I stepped down from Secretary of Energy, went back to Stanford, I started uh, in a few new areas. I'm working with a colleague of mine, Yisui, on lithium metal sulfur batteries. Um, why lithium metal sulfur? Well, um, if the future batteries are really going to, EVs are really going to take hold, uh, even one or 2% cobalt is deemed not too much. And you've got to get rid of the cobalt and nickel's not far behind. Uh, so, and we are up to our eyeballs in sulfur because of desulfurized fuels. Uh, no one's been able to make a lithium sulfur battery because they can't keep the sulfur on the cathode side. And so we're trying uh, a new idea. Um, it's we're not ready to submit yet, but so and and uh, so what we're testing this battery and uh, just to tantalize you, it takes in order to go full cycles 100 percent to zero and back. So it's uh, well beyond what you normally need to test the battery. But we're on seven hundred cycles, so this is by far a world record already. Uh, because if you go 95 to 20, you know, you're going to be well over a thousand cycles. So we'll see. Um, we figured out how we just published a paper this June on how to get mined lithium from seawater using electrochemistry. Uh, the postdoc who worked on the project is now at the University of Chicago and she's continuing this. You need to cycle it again thousands of times in order to make it commercially viable. But the electricity is negligible. It's it's really and the materials cheap. So so it, there's some things that uh, I would give it a 50% or maybe higher chance that it could become commercial. Now, if that works, lithium won't be a problem, at least for a couple thousand years. That's not to say we shouldn't recycle lithium. <laughs> uh, 
for other reasons. <laughs> but, uh, and so, and other people are working on that. J.B. Straub, you know, one of the founders of Tesla is working on that. So, so there's that. Uh, there's also working on ultrasound imaging, um, new way of doing ultrasound imaging and uh, a, a so-called nonlinear imaging, which turns out to be much more sensitive to tumors as we just got a Chan Zuckerberg grant to get a seed to see if that really can be uh, get into clinical practice, but it's partly research and partly, uh, you know, moving forward on that. Then finally, we're doing new nanoparticle synthesis. I didn't know how to synthesize particles before. We, none of this is, by the way, it's all new since 2014. Uh, every topic I've hit is something I've never touched before. And that is also working very well. About to submit, a, uh, we submit a couple of materials papers, but more importantly, the stuff really works. And so we're able to do biological experiments with it and what that people simply couldn't do before. And so it's all very exciting. That's on my university side. <laughs> then there's something else <laughs> on the other side I advise uh, some startups and also some bigger companies. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell is one um, on their science council and Siemens is another, but also small startup companies, carbon capture companies, uh, a biotech company that is combining robotics with the new powerful gene manipulation with machine learning, uh, ultimately to get organisms to make things, uh, biogenerate things that uh, uh, could be useful. Now, it's gonna be a while before we're gonna make fuel uh, because you're competing against 40, $50 barrel oil. Uh, so you start with higher value products and believe it or not, things like uh, films for smartphones uh, and, and electronics, things of that nature. It's exciting because in this combination of more powerful gene manipulation techniques and robotics to take out the noise and machine learning, you begin to program microbes to do things where sometimes about half the genes you put in, you don't even know what they do. So the machine learning big data is picking up patterns not based on understanding, but saying, okay, I, we don't know really what these genes do. We know what these genes do. We wouldn't have guessed some of them would be important, but oh, the rest of them, well, you know, as, as you know, many of the genes that have been identified, uh, we simply don't know what they do. Even in human genetics, there are many, many proteins. In fact, one of the nanoparticle things we're doing is we're studying uh, um, people who have what's called Swedish mutation, which have much higher likelihood of getting early onset Alzheimer's. You can take cells from people and convert them back into neuron cells. And now all of a sudden you're working with neurons that are from people who have different mutations or, or alleles of APOE4 and things like that and compare and look around for what is different in, in cells from these people versus um, um, normal people. Unfortunately, normal people, we all have a reasonably good chance of getting Alzheimer's by the time we're 90. <laughs> yeah. 
but but early onset is 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 much more serious. Yeah, yeah. So and then this that's a that's a, a fascinating sort of tour on the horizon of some really exciting new areas, as you say, all new since uh, two thousand fourteen. Um, last time we spoke, you also mentioned uh, electrolysis, some yes. na nanostructuring, so that there's there isn't the um, the, the the forces against the bubble formation, which right. was uh, which was one of the one of the things that requires uh, energy input in electrolysis. That's continuing. I um, I mean, one of the the things we so we published a few papers, but when you convert the idea into a little prototype to really see if it's going to work, um, and you're working with graduate students, <laughs> sometimes uh, they they're good at engineering and sometimes they're not. And so, but but this person is actually very, a, a very good student. I'm not to denigrate the person, but but. But I have convinced Shell and Siemens both about three or four years ago to take electrolysis seriously for the following reason. It's very simple. When electricity is five cents a kilowatt hour, the energy cost is simply more than you can sell this stuff for, period. Even if CapEx were zero. Uh, if electricity, especially with renewable energy, when you go to 50%, you're gonna have a lot of excess energy. And there, even, even people like Royal Dutch Shell think it'll be one to one and a half cents a kilowatt hour within a couple of a decade or so. All of a sudden, the, for, for example, the production of hydrogen, the cost of the energy is less than a third of everything. And all of a sudden you went from impossible to let's think of more clever ways of doing it. And, and so one of the things I was telling about electrolysis is not only the bubble, you, it creates uh, internal resistance because you have to supply energy to expand, expand the bubble. There's something also very important. And that is in catalysis where you have, let's say a feedstock that's liquid like water and you turn into hydrogen and oxygen, you don't want it to form bubbles for the reason you just described. And so you put the electrolysis on a, a very inexpensive hydrophobic, that means it hates water, uh, interface. The catalyst is right there within a micron or two. You're a hydrogen molecule. You look around, you say, do I want to form a bubble or do I escape with 5,000 times faster diffusion into the gas phase? So of course, that's the route you take. Uh, that clears out the hydrogen and so and similarly on the oxygen side. So just the physics of, of this, what we call mixture of gas and liquid uh, electrochemistry, heterogeneous catalysis, is one in which uh, you could also have feedstocks like CO2 coming in, doing electrolysis uh, and either forming a liquid phase something or forming out a gas phase. This gas liquid interface right at the surface of a micron is the essential idea. And right. that, that's, that's dictated by physics and it's at catalyst agnostic, right? So if someone invents another catalyst, it's great. It, it, it's, it's more the physics of why you want to have this vapor liquid interface. And that I think uh, has a lot of promise. Now, why, why do you want to do this? Well, if you th think of hydrogen, 
there's a minimum potential, a certain number of volts per catalytic reaction. The minimum just to get the thermodynamic stuff is 1.23 V mm-hmm. electron volts. Uh, most catalysts are not 100% efficient. So you, there's a little bit of overpinning. You have a little hill you have to climb over. So their thresholds are about 1.4 volts, but they don't run them at 1.4 volts. They run them at 2.2 volts. Why? Because they want to get the rate up. You want, uh, yeah. you know, an amp per square centimeter, uh, uh, a milliamp per square centimeter, uh, and and so when you have this vapor liquid interface, the hope is that you can run at one point five volts, which you use to produce it at at two point two volts. Right. So that further lowers the cost of energy. You go to a micron scale thing, so you make it much more compact. So these are the engineering things that I think are very, very possible. And it's just, how do you execute this? And I'm hoping Shell or Siemens can pick this up and run with it. And and you were saying that you could do it with CO2. So that would be for carbon capture rather than for electrolysis of hydrogen. That would be saying what you're saying is, this with different catalyst and, and you could use it also for uh, to reduce the costs and the energy requirement of uh, direct air capture. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, if you think about what we've been doing for the last 130 years, we take hydrocarbons, yeah. which loaded with energy made by nature, and we go energy downhill, and we convert these hydrocarbons into other forms of hydrocarbons. So the whole plastics and chemical industry is based on mostly petroleum feedstocks or natural gas feedstocks. So it's going downhill. Then when you and then when you have these fuels or sources of energy or plastic, let's say they're fuels, you burn them and what do you get? You get carbon dioxide and water. So the lowest energy state at the bottom of the sill is water and carbon dioxide. Now, if you want to take water and carbon dioxide and build go back up Oh, yeah. You've got to supply energy. Sure. Now, the exciting thing is in a world of 20 years from now, when we get really good at both generating energy and we've got to get good at storing energy, uh, then the, the move uphill becomes less and less expensive. And so then you can take things that we have an abundance of. Uh, you can recycle the carbon dioxide from point sources, cement plants, everything else. Eventually, we're going to have to take carbon dioxide from the air. Uh, it's almost a given now, uh, but you start with the easy stuff, like from a cement plant. Um, why is it a given we're going to have to take it? Well, we're at 415 parts per million. We're not going to stay below 450. You know, that's in a couple more, a decade or two. We're probably going to go over 550. And, and then when you get over 550, you're getting to pretty dangerous territory, but there's a little bit of time before the polar caps melt. So you're going to be able, you're going to have to get it out of the, out of the air and sequester, put it back underground or mineralize it or do something. Uh, And, uh, and we've got to figure out how to do that very inexpensively as well. Yeah. What I'm going to do, if I could, is, you know, that's a that's a, um, a fantastic sort of opening statement. And there's a number of jumping off points to different topics that I'd love to try to cover. Sure. You talked about uh, cheap energy, that the cheap electricity, five cents versus one cent. You talked about uh, climate change and the, uh, the imperative to get down below, you know, to get, sort of get back down below the 550. Get back below 450. <laughs> yeah, below 450 and, uh, and so on. 
Um, and also some of these kind of very uh, nanoscale or molecular scale um, sort of interactions. So we'll come back to, I think, a, a, a bunch of those um, mm -hmm. questions. But one thing is fascinating to me is that you are a professor of physics and also physiology, molecular and cellular mm -hmm. physiology. So, um, and obviously in your earlier career, it was atomic physics and it was very physics and then Secretary of Energy. So you'd sort of expect it to be more physics, but, but physiology. So explain, explain that journey, if you could. Okay, so that actually started in the late 80s um, when I was at Bell Labs and we were doing laser cooling and atom trapping. And then Art Ashkin discovered uh, that the same laser trap could hold on to bacteria. So he made this discovery oh. and it's fantastic. And so he was awarded a Nobel Prize for this work, uh, I think two years ago, believe it or not. Um, and you, so- you got, you got there first. Well, we I got the Nobel Prize for laser cooling and atom trapping, but there's the same physics of the trap. Right. Now, ironically, Ashkin just passed away at the age of 98, but he, all the little pieces of what he invented were there in 1970, except he missed only one ingredient. <laughs> and I mean, he knew about the forces. He knew you can hold on to particles. He, uh, at that time, he was thinking particles, not atoms. Uh, later, he was thinking atoms, but wasn't able to technically pull it off. But the one ingredient he missed was when we were doing laser cooling, we tried other traps. They didn't work. And in desperation, we thought about one he proposed. And, but it was not highlighted uh, because it was a laser focused to a really tiny spot, couldn't trap anything. The, the volume was nothing. So you won't even think of trapping atoms. Then we had this so-called optical molasses, this laser cooling. And it took a couple of weeks. And I said, wait a minute, you know, if, if there's a teeny tiny little trap and you've got an atom that's a kind of micron, just a little random walk and it sees this thing and falls in and it gets cooled and it lands there. And so I said, you know, this could work. If you turn on the trap, there's one atom in the volume and there's a million atoms outside the volume. That's ridiculous. You won't even be able to see it. But I said, but if it randomly walks around, it's, it's for the same reason you go to, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, in a city where there's a bunch of bars on a Sunday morning and you look around and you don't find people who are drunk and passed out uh, on top of cars, you find them in gutters. That's because it's the lowest potential. They randomly walk around and that's where they land. And so I said, this is going to work. And, and so Ashkin said, well, we can do this in water with just a single focus laser beam on particles. So the water was the poor man's optical molasses, but it's the same. It's a cooling, a water cooled thing. And so it worked, the other thing worked, everything worked. And it was this realization that combining cooling with a random walk and you can capture these things. So, so Ashton discovers you can hold on to bacteria. And then he discovers you can even hold on to little organelles inside things like yeast. And that was great. And off he goes. And, you know, clearly biologists were getting interested in this. I was holding on to atoms. So I told artists, I said, look, if you can hold on to bacteria, you can hold on to atoms. 
maybe if we glue a little polystyrene sphere onto a biomolecule, you can hold on to the molecule with this. You could hold on to molecules by holding on to bacteria, and then you can manipulate the bacteria, but that's a natural handle. But let, you know, let's put in a, a fake handle, and that worked. And so that was done in 1989, 99, 80, 89, uh, uh, 90. Uh, I got sidetracked because I used that technology to work in polymer physics, um, but but it was very quickly picked up by the biology community. So that started my journey into biology in the late 80s, early 90s. By the mid 90s, I was looking at other things you could do studying single molecular systems and so developing other technologies. By the late 90s, my center of gravity was 50-50. And by 2003 or four, it was actually more biology. So even before I became Secretary of Energy, I, was, I had two groups, atomic physics and biology. By the time I was Secretary of Energy, it was predominantly biology. Right. So in fact, it was the journey had started 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Fascinating. And I suppose I was going to ask the question of whether, you know, since you work on those two areas, if you look at the sort of big solutions for climate change and for some of the big challenges that we face, are they more likely to come out of physics or are they more likely to come out of biology? You need things that scale, that go from those, those nano scales up to, up, to, up to huge and vast scales, but where's it likely to come from? And then I'm, I'm wondering whether that's a stupid question because the two are so closely, you know, there sort of becomes almost no difference between the two. Well, you know, it's not a stupid question because, because uh, but you're quite right. Anything you do ha really has to scale, especially if it's climate. You, know, yeah. you should be interested in things, at least 100 megatons of carbon abate. You know, nothing below that, don't bother thinking about. <clears throat> because our carbon emissions equivalents about, you know, 40 plus gigatons a year. <clears throat> uh, but the things I told you about electrolysis, batteries, uh, uh, lithium mine. The heart of that is actually at the nano meso scale. Yeah. And so pay attention to interfaces, being able to, but you've got to make sure it's manufactured very inexpensively. And uh, I, I have to say that when I go into these areas, I'm not interested really in publishing papers. Uh, I won't go into something to get a paper out if it doesn't have a chance of getting out there, uh, you know, life is short, why bother? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not everybody has that attitude, but, uh, but maybe it's because I'm getting older. But in any case, um, uh, now on the bio side, that's, that's a harder decision. On the material side, you, there, there are many things we do now in mass scale and, uh, uh, that could work. The biology side, there are very few things that we make at millions of tons of stuff a year. Okay. What do we make in millions of tons? It's mostly fermentation. Alcohol. 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 Yeah. And hundreds of millions of <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> Thank goodness. Soy, soy, yeah. MSG, things like that. We make it millions of tons a year. Well, ye so, yeast. And yeast. Yeah. yeah. Anything happening to you, yeast yeah. is a, you know, yeah. yeast is the thing that makes the soy soy, the MSG, and the alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and then the question is, can you program the yeast or other microorganisms 
to, you know, the yeast making alcohol has been refined over thousands of years. It's really good. They've even figured out how to make yeast uh, generate alcohol that doesn't begin to turn off or die at 12% alcohol, which is why the wines are now 13 half or 14 yeah. and 14 and percent, which I think is too alcoholic myself. <laughs> but that's, that's an editorial. <laughs> uh, so, so then the question is, can you take microorganisms like yeast and turn 92%, which is what they do in alcohol, of their entire metabolic energy into making alcohol, something they, why should they want to make that? And so it goes back to this startup company that I'm part of. It's exactly that. Can you program these things to get at least up to 90%, 88%, 90%? At that point, you, you, you can have grain elevator size fermenters and you go to millions of tons. Uh, and, it, and there is hope that you can make things like nylons, other fibers using microorganisms that begin to replace the fibers that we used to make from oil. And, and so there again, because when you do that, what you're doing ultimately is you're taking CO2 from something, <laughs> turning into some compound with carbon and hydrogen. And the new thing in biology is we're allowed to have oxygen. Uh, oxygen, you know, because hydrocarbons are just C and H. Yeah. You have a much richer template for, uh, for generating newer products. Uh, but the first thing, ultimately, you want to replace the old stuff, the big bulk stuff. And that's, that's for energy, transportation, chemicals, plastics, structural materials. And although, you know, you, you talk about fiber, I, th I think that fiber looks fairly um, uh, optimistic, also various chemical feedstocks. But the holy grail is, of course, a fuel and not starting with starch or, or something like that, but starting with um, with a lignocellulose or, or, or a, a wood or something that nature produces in abundance? Um, or do you think we can go directly from CO2? You know, what, what are we going, are we going to go via a biomass feedstock or do you think we're going to go straight to the CO2 when we, when we crack this? Yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's tough to call. I, I think right now the, it's more likely to go biomass uh, ability to um, break down the lignocellulose much more efficiently. Uh, the, going, the hydrogen is going to be commercially viable with electrolysis yes. within a decade. Yes. Uh, but that's just a start. But you, to make hydrocarbons is still more uphill energy. And you need the C. You've got to get this carbon from somewhere. Yes, yeah. yes. And now the carbon, and you want to get it from, from carbon emitting sources or the atmosphere. Yeah. There's no way we go to zero unless we're grabbing stuff from the atmosphere, either by photosynthesis or by direct air capture. Yes. Photosynthesis, uh, I don't know if most of your listeners know, but it, the amount of carbon dioxide that's captured by the crops and grassland we grow for grazing is more than the carbon emissions of the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but most of it, 99 point whatever percent gets recycled. Just recycles, yeah. And, and, and so if you can take that natural photosynthesis, make substitute products, eventually fuel, 
substitute products eventually uh, most of the stuff, uh, you also will generate some CO2, for example, in the fermentation process. So what do you do? You capture that, you stick it underground or you mineralize it, what are the other? And then it becomes a negative source of CO2, okay? Yeah. And so that's, that's what we need. We need some negative sources of CO2. And, and there's a, there is some, some, some old press coverage from before you were Secretary of Energy about the glucose economy. Yes. Um, was that sort of directionally, is that consistent with what we've just been talking about? Well, that was assigned by some reporter, um, <laughs> not by me. But, oh, okay. but, but you know, just to remind people what that meant was it's photosynthesis. Uh, and then you, you, you take that photosynthesis into starches or, or yeah. lignocellulose, you convert it to sugars, feed it to microbes, and then let the microbes make what you need to make. Okay, so glucose was only one of the stages, wasn't it? It wasn't the end. Okay, but one of the things uh, during your time as Secretary of Energy that you kicked off something called the Sunshot, which is about solar well, actually, power. Well, I have it. Uh, Are you? Uh, it's my. Oh sunshot. wow! It's it's the Department of Energy swag. <laughs> you're actually wearing still a, a sunshot t-shirt hey i never got a sunshot a sunshot t-shirt i want to know I, 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 never... I can get if you promise to wear it we'll get you one <laughs> why did i not get this swag i never got swag <laughs> i had to buy my i had to buy my own atomic mug i got no swag <laughs> but let me just read um there's something actually it's from the doe's um uh, website it says on february the 4th 2011 a date that uh that the swag was probably um, released. The Department of Energy launched the Sunshot Initiative to reduce the total cost of solar energy by 75%, making it cost competitive at large scale with other forms of energy without subsidies by the end of the decade, which would have been 2020. So the year just, just closed. Um, this cost reduction corresponds to utility scale solar costing approximately $1 per watt or 0.06 dollars, so six cents per kilowatt hour. You know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. Um, making solar energy a possibility for millions of Americans. Now, of course, what we now know is that it went far beyond that. So the sun shot, which seemed like this kind of crazy, the moon shot, but it was the sun shot. Actually, by 2020, we had gone under that by a factor of maybe another 75%. Instead yeah. of doing one 75% cost reduction through the application of technology and capital and scale, you know, lots of Chinese uh, uh, subsidized capital for their manufacturers and so on. It had happened, you know, twice, two, seven, two lots of 75% right, right. reductions. Were you surprised at the speed of the development or was that what you were secretly hoping for all along? Absolutely shocked. Uh, when we first were thinking about the program, we were talking to uh, solar manufacturers, people like Dick Swanson, who, yep. you know, uh, and, um, and they were having a goal that was half of what we were proposing. But we said, no, 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 we think, it, and it wasn't just a, a, an aspiration. Uh, when we set up the program, we, we had these waterfall charts and said, where could the cost reductions come from? And yeah. tried to really detail what the map roadmap might look like. And then in our first sunshot um, uh, symposium or something, Swanson was very nice. He got up there and I said, when you guys where I first met with you, you said, you guys are nuts. You must be smoking something. 
But then you start, we started talking and I went back and thought about it and said, it's not crazy. It's, it's an achievable goal. And, and at the so, time, just to remind the audience at the time, it was about 25 US cents per kilowatt hour yeah, for solar power, levelized costs. So if you ran it yeah. uh, as, as much as you could all year, you'd get a cost of 25 cents per kilowatt hour versus something like what, six or eight cents if yes. you were using natural gas or coal. So, so part of what we did not anticipate was, as you mentioned, the Chinese overinvestment, government subsidized overinvestment, which drove a lot of solar companies bankrupt, drove the biggest Chinese solar company bankrupt. But the Chinese, unlike the US, the Chinese company just supported the company and said, no, we're not going to let it go under and sold for parts. Um, now the industry has recovered. You can now make solar cells at a profit at some ridiculously low costs. You're selling profitably at 50 cents per watt. Uh, and there was technology development. There were a few other things. You got to made them more efficient, better, cheaper, longer lasting. Now, believe it or not, crystalline solar may be the dominant form. It, it's uh, because you figured out how to make that. Hmm. So it's all these things. And so what the Department of Energy did, this is after I left, they said, it's very clear we're going to exceed the goal. So they made a new set of goals. <laughs> and um, but this idea of saying, you know, let's see what can actually be done if you really want to get there. Talk with start to talk to industry, talk to scientists. What are the things now? What are the things we wanted to do, which didn't come along fast enough? There were these soft costs. Yeah. The cost of installation, especially rooftops, the, uh, the cost of installing solar rooftop in Germany was half the cost in the United States. And it wasn't because of cheap German labor. <laughs> uh, there wasn't a $1,000 licensing fee, uh, you know, because the little municipalities wanted a little cut of the action. You know, it's, uh, so it's like a permit. Uh, there were lots of other things. And so I actually, when I was still Secretary of Energy, I actually got in the run and said, look, you know, we have to bring the costs, the salt costs down to where it is in Germany. Uh, we look at the technology. How do we find the technology? We just kind of filmed German work crews installing solar rooftop in Germany. They spend half the time. Yeah. Okay, same basic type of roof, half the time. They got much more efficient. You can, you can do uh, online ordering uh, and licensing and everything. And the only thing you really need to do is when you're about to hook it up, someone's got to go out and make sure that it's not going to screw up the electrical system. It's just like when I, you, know, you have a gas heater, the gas company goes in and says it's not going to cause an accident. Okay, that's about it. You don't need anything else besides that last inspection. And I said, and I know you municipalities want income, but why don't you make, make your income the old fashioned way with parking tickets and speed traps and leave solar out of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it actually worked in Massachusetts. It didn't work in California. <laughs> they realized, oh yeah, we don't wanna. <laughs> yeah. So in the state it would, anyway, so, so we did a whole bunch of other things like that. Um, now what I see is that we're in a very good space. Wind is getting cheaper and cheaper. 
uh, because the engineers are getting, and even offshore wind is really plunging. Yeah. So the next biggest challenge is you've got solar, you've got wind, but they're not on all the time. You know, solar is 30% of the time. Wind maybe off the coast of England is actually 50, 60% of the time. That's great stuff. But you need energy storage and it cannot all come from chemical batteries. In fact, the larger scale storage, the storage for several days in the near-term future, meaning the next 20 to 30 years, will not come from chemical batteries. It's gonna come from pumping water in existing dams up a hill, pump storage, which is 95% of all energy storage in the world today. Um, it's very clear if you don't wanna double energy costs, even when wind and solar get well below natural gas, it's the storage that's gonna be an issue when you're going 50, 60, 70% um, uh, intermittent energy. And so there has to be something else. And there's, it's gonna be in one or two forms. It's either gonna be storage of heat in a new way, or it's a mechanical type of storage. Now, what I mean by mechanical type of storage, you take electricity and you can turn a motor with 95 plus percent efficiency. That motor can lift stuff. And we found historically that the cheapest way to lift stuff is to pump water through a big pipe. The round trip efficiency, if you're 50 meters up, is 85, 80, 85% efficient, pumping water and all the friction up the hill and then letting it come back through the turbine. That's actually as efficient as a chemical flow battery. But it's huge. It's, you can get gigawatts of power that way and gigawatt hours. Um, and so anywhere there's an existing dam, put a little holding pond at the bottom of it mm. and just recycle the water. And I'm just, I'm surprised because I thought you were going to say that the way to do it is going to be using some form of molecule, some kind of a, uh, you know, power to X type storage. Oh, and then you that, that is going to be part of it for right. sure. And height. And so using electricity to store hydrogen, then hydrogen at not the 10,000 PSI you need for mobility, but it lower but yeah. but so hydrogen will play a role in, in, in possibly in certain types of mobility, but also in, in stationary storage. Yeah. Station. Okay. Hydrogen hydrogen is great, right? There's no overhead. All the think of a battery. A lot of that stuff is overhead, um, and so hydrogen is great. Hydrogen doesn't ship very well because liquefying it uh, to twenty kelvin is not a really good option. People are looking at all sorts of things, turn that to ammonia, which is can be shipped uh, at higher temperatures and, yeah. and a little bit of pressure. That's all great. Uh, it's going to be a mixture of things like hydrogen. Uh, ideally, we still want to get that hydrocarbon for airplanes. Okay. Yes, I mean, aviation is really is really tough. But if we stick for a second with the electrical, um, well, with the energy system actually as a whole, the mantra, um, I'm not sure to what extent it was the mantra during your period as Secretary of Energy, um, but it's certainly associated with the Obama period overall is all of the above. Yes, um, I, I agree. That was, I, I was all of the above. I was very skeptical of hydrogen my first year or two. And my last year, I said, no, things, things are changing dramatically. And my first year, I said something that horrified 
some of the good hydrogen folks in the Department of Energy. I said, well, hydrogen, I was mostly about mobility and I was thinking, uh, hydrogen for mobility needs, uh, it needs, uh, it needs four miracles. Um, the fuel cells, which is, the, it, which are going to be made cheaper. And so I, I had no doubt the fuel cell technology will come along. So that was one, but that's okay. Then storage. You cannot store it at 10,000 PSI in carbon tanks. It's not that practical. Uh, for certain special high use things, yes, but for ordinary home use, we have not, not practical. A distribution system, right? You have to have a hydrogen pipeline to standard steels get brittle. So you need a distribution system and you need cheap power. You need a clean source of hydrogen. So it's like, okay, you need four miracles, but that's okay. With three, you get to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> You get to be a saint. You get to be a saint. Yeah. You get to be a saint with three miracles, and the hydrogen people. So, so now, what is different? Cheap energy is here. You can actually use electricity to generate locally if you have electrolyzers that become practical and cheap. Okay, the fuel cells have made it, in my opinion. You know, there's still an economy of scale, and the the five thousand hydrogen cars that Toyota makes, we don't really know how much it costs, but my guess is it's a quarter million dollars per car. <laughs> they sell for 50,000, but, uh, but that's okay. Uh, but when they go to a million cars a year, it's very believable that you go overcome this economy of scale hurdle, just like Tesla. And so, so the di distribution system is uh, ultimately, you know, we, we do have it's feasible. It's feasible. It's feasible. Yeah. Whether you use the existing gas pipelines, uh, you're going to have to line them with some polymer that protects it, uh, or you just use the right of way and stick a polymer pipe in. It's it, that part's feasible. And so, so hydrogen is going to be part of the problem, a uh, part of the solution. Uh, yeah. So I, I I agree. It is. I've been doing a lot of work on hydrogen, and I suppose that the the kind of the fifth miracle though is that it has to do all those things in transportation is that it has to do all those things cheaper and better than the alternatives and the alternatives are not standing still the alternatives are pretty darn good already if you know i'm sure you've driven an electric car and uh, and they're getting better and cheaper all the time right. and i think what's the other the other area that's suggested for hydrogen is heating where it's kind of six times less efficient than using a heat pump because not only do you have to you have losses making your hydrogen, but then you don't have the coefficient of performance. Uh, and so it just, you know, I, I see hydrogen in long term storage. I see it in green chemistry. I see it in, um, in in aviation fuel. I see ammonia maybe in shipping fuel and so on. But I'm, I just find it very hard to see it. Um, we need heating, we need alternative. Yeah. Yeah, uh, transport uh, and heating. Well, so for heavy duty use, rapid refueling, it's great. You can still fuel hydrogen faster than you can batteries. Now, that's, as you say, it's not moving, it's still, and, um, you know, I'm on the, I do battery research and I'm on the board of a battery company. And the goal in both yep. is to get, so the battery research is next generation. The battery companies are racing to get what is called 1C to 2C charge. That means for the, your listeners, 
that you have a charge 100% to zero, you usually go 95 to 15%. And then 95 to 15% uh, of that capacity, can you charge it? One C means, can you charge in one hour? Two C means, can you charge in 30 minutes? Okay. Right. Most of the charging is, is C over three. Now imagine you get to just, I'll pick up a number three C. Okay, so that means uh, kind of full useful range in 20 minutes, yeah. but the first two thirds actually gets there in about a third of the time. Mm. Okay, so if you have a 400 mile range or 350 mile range, you're talking 200 miles in five, six minutes, five minutes, okay? Now at that point, the, the battery is lasting longer than the human bladder. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, you take it in for refueling five minutes. You don't mind waiting five minutes. The, the fueling, refueling stations love you to be there four or five minutes because you've got to kill time, you know, and you go in and buy candies, soda, you know, whatever. That's, they make most of their profit, turns out. I, I learned this from Shell, but they run their own gasoline stations in Europe more profit from selling stuff than yeah. the fuel. Just like the uh, car dealers make much more profit from repair than from selling the car, which is why they're so afraid of electric vehicles. The repair goes way down, yeah. right? There are gonna be very few oil leaks. Um, and so, so all these things, so, so it's gonna, so you still need a storage, a, a, a compact storage. Uh, but in, I can see in certain cases where you still have rapid refueling and volume is not as big a deal. Um, yeah. But but it, it's got all these complications. Yeah, and it's wonderful because you're sort of perfectly hedged with your your electrolysis research and your battery research, uh, very well well positioned between the two there. But um, <laughs> well, just to touch on a couple of other sort of to topic areas in the energy space, um, nuclear, um, and obviously you know you, you've got the background in, in you, know, you, you understand the science better than I suspect, uh, you know, most of us, all of us. Um, what is your sense of some of the, you know, the, this kind of battle between the existing mega projects, which I believe have been tested to economic destruction. I can't believe that there are any more in the real economics. I can't believe there are any more economic in the developing world or in China than they are in, you know, countries where the full economics is revealed by transparency in the market. So Europe, the US, where, you know, they just don't work anymore economically or haven't in the last decade or so. Um, but, but is there, is there hope? Am I wrong? Number one, and number two, is there hope in the next generation, the small modular reactors, or the new, uh, new um, uh, configurations, right. or new uh, fuel types? Uh, there is hope. I, I agree with you. The large gigawatt reactors, uh, given all the requirements and 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 what you need to do, and all the key components, have to have, you know, down to key bolts have to be traceable yeah. uh, uh, because of the uh, concerns of safety. Uh, I don't think you're gonna be able to whisk away concerns of safety because the public sentiment is what it is, okay? Uh, so how do, you, how do you do this? Well, the hope is that you produce the small modular reactors at a factory where the quality control is you just stamp them out you know thousands uh then the approval process goes down the safety concerns have to be we stamp out many many cars 
and airplanes. There's still safety concerns with cars and airplanes, but, but one can deal with it, but it cannot be one-offs. Every time you build a reactor, you go back to the same thing. You certify the plane, you certify the car, and then you make sure that as they stamp them out, that there aren't, you know, uh, we still have recalls, but I was, I was just going to say, you know, when you recall some cars, 150,000 people are inconvenienced. But if you recall a big chunk of our uh, energy generating infrastructure, that's going to be pretty disruptive. But yeah. So the recalls, I just got an airbag, uh, my old 19 year old car. Uh, it was one of the airbags that went under moist air. Uh, it could blow up and kill people. Um, so, so it was a recall. It took uh, several hours for them to replace the airbag. Of course, you're talking to the dealer and they tried to convince you that there's an emerging oil leak in your transmission oil and your engine. I said, that's okay. It's 19 years old. I, I drive it 1,200 miles a year. I have a dipstick. And not only that, I didn't tell them. And oh, by the way, in my garage, I don't see any puddle of oil. <laughs> But <laughs> that's a bit so, different if it is a nuclear power station, you know. Um, no, so the question is when you do a recall, you're not going to do a recall. It's right. been installed. It's a 50 megawatt or 25 megawatt or 100 megawatt thing. And so you've got to be able to do it on site. Yeah. Uh, in a way that's seamless. Uh, so you can bring it down. But, but the whole issue of bringing something down and doing, if it's a, a crucial thing, uh, you know, it's radioactive and that slows stuff up. Mm -hmm. And so the real, the real issue is if, if it's something that's going to have this thing down for months, uh, if it's some, if it's not some auxiliary piece, but it's really in the core, vital core, the yeah. core of the core, if you use yeah. something like that. Then you've got to have spares. You've got just, you know, think of our electricity uh, systems. You have these massive substation transformers, right? And what people have is those things do break down. And what they have is they have a bunch of spares. And you want to standardize those spares. Uh, any sane rational transmission distribution system has just a few standard sizes. And if one goes down, boom, it's back in. You're off the grid for a day or two, and then you're you're on. You're going to so have to do the same. And, and you're optimistic that the modular reactors, if they're made in that way, there's the maintenance replacement spares system that you talk about. You think that it will be it will be able to produce affordable power. I mean, it will be in competition with, you know, solar plus batteries or with solar plus batteries most of the time and a bit of pumped storage or a bit of something else. The answer is no. <laughs> I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I think you asked, you asked if I had a chance. Yeah. Said, yes, right. I had a chance. Yeah. Uh, if I were going to bet on anything, it would be some combination of chemical plus heat plus pump yeah. storage, all those other things, plus you know the pathway for another factor of two in renewable energy getting less expensive is pretty yeah. well there. It's baked in. And so it becomes energy storage, transmission, distribution, um, and and these forms of energy storage. So I, I would bet more on that than nuclear. I think the public fear of nuclear is what it is. Yeah, but and you would still does that mean 
because you say you would bet on the other, does that mean you would then starve the nuclear of funds and say you're probably going to lose, so we shouldn't do it? Or, I mean, I, I, my position is, no. I think that's probably where you're coming from is probably right. Um, but I still think, you know, spend a few billion. I mean, what's a few billion in the modern economy to be sure? Because we don't have that many, you know, arrows in the quiver. I agree with you completely. It's just the reason why we're spending billions on fusion. Now, if, if you ask me whether I think fusion will be economically viable, the answer is even less likely. Right. Because, you know, a fusion reactor is not a $10 billion venture, it's a $30 billion venture, commercial fusion. Okay, the liability of that building project is late a couple of years of $30 billion is economically catastrophic. And so just that alone is, I mean, I, as I began to advise companies like Shell and Siemens, I began to realize that something that costs $10 billion, like the Pearl um, uh, 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 Fisher Tropes in the Middle East, that was a 10 billion, but it had a cost over and so it ended up costing 12 billion or 13 billion. A big oil company like Royal Shell, it's smarting from that. Uh, the appetite for investing in 1 billion or 0.1 billion, 0.1 billion is a nothing. nothing yeah. You think about it, 10 billion, you, you agonize over it. Yeah. And so that's the other thing of, about these economies of scale. When you go to these huge investments, all of a sudden the commercial world is, is very exposed. So there's a lot of excitement about fusion in the sort of startup world. There's, I don't know how many fusion businesses. Yes. Um, are, you, are you involved? Yes, I'm actually the advisory committee of one and I watched the others. <laughs> are you on the advisory committee of one? You are. Um, one, the one that works out of Oxford. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but, and I watched, I watched the others and, and I have to say that, I mean, there's a, the most recent hype is one in which is a much more compact magnetic confinement one. Right. Uh, That's the, mini, and, the mini tokamak. I can't remember what it's called. Exactly. Yes. Uh, well, again, it has a chance, but I tell you one thing that's not in the headlines, and that is if it's going to be a commercial reactor, you still have this incredible neutron flux. And with all of him buying everything, you still have an issue. And with the one of the large standard size, you were, one is looking at uh, it's a materials problem. Because um, <clears throat> you end up with hydrogen embrittlement of everything. Right. And, and the neutron bombardment actually makes the nuclei of the material move around. Okay. And so it's in, in addition, that's part of the hydrogen embrittlement is that, but you also, you know, like um, someone told me in one year, they moved a hundred times. How are you going to get, okay, so, so right now, the best materials we have uh, at the fluxes that are anticipated for a large scale fusion reactor was that there's a sacrificial layer of material yes. that protects it from the uh, outer containment vessel, but the sacrificial layer has to be moved out every five years, seven years, right. something like that, because otherwise it will just simply crumble. Okay, so that's a lot of downtime because this is radioactive stuff, short-term radioactive. You've got to stop it, you've got to cleanse it, you've got to put it back on. So it's, this is not a weekend operation, this is months of operation. So that's one thing. Now, 
then you take that and you say, okay, what if you have the smaller reactors, but you want at least one tenth and one half the power size, you know, gigawatt. The, the fluxes become that much worse. Hmm. But just think of the surface area of the sacrificial layer. People don't talk about that, but it is a really, <laughs> because they don't even, they don't even want to talk about the old problem <laughs> with the standard fusion reactors. I want to get onto the question of science and society briefly, but I've got one other question. I mean, it's, I, I feel almost embarrassed to ask, but I'm going to, because there, there is, NASA has now created a little bit of air cover for me to ask you this question, uh, which is about lattice confinement fusion. Um, and there's a, a group at the, um, the Glenn Lab, the Glenn Research Center, that's published a paper, a sort of proper paper about what normally I would have, you know, I've spent my life, most of my adult life thinking of as pathological science. Um, the, you know, they call it lattice confined nuclear reaction, but it's essentially the cold fusion or LENR that, that as it now is, but this is NASA who have detected it. So they've kind of given it now the imprimatur that NASA has found this effect. Have you looked at it or is it just, do you, you think no, it's I, 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 you sort of won't go there or, you know, it's, it's just, it seems like there is something probably years from being useful or whatever, but there does now seem to be a body of serious scientists saying, yes, there is some kind of, a, of, of an effect. Well, I, I would have to say first that um, uh, you can take, I can, I can see where it might, I haven't, first, I haven't, I haven't read about this. So, so I'm going to just speak from ignorance of what I know from background physics. Uh, you can take an ion and you can accelerate it and you can crash it into something and you can, you can, you can create fusion this way. Right. And, and real fusion, uh, it's, it's it's not that your the thing is as hot as the sun or anything like that, but it's it's ion collisions, and um, and you can I can easily see and this is true of plasmas which people are you know want a bunch of star companies trying to do that and and so you get the neutrons uh, that really tell you that this is really real fusion okay yeah. but. But none of the things I've seen so far are telling me that this is going to scale. So, you know, you're, you're not, if you throw deuterium ions against tritium ions, <laughs> you can get it, but that's not enough, right? You need massive numbers. And so, so I can easily imagine having a lattice in which in, in, in a nanoscale, there could be some ion rapid last minute acceleration things, okay? Or just a nanoscale accelerator. You, you can do these things that will create, can create fusion. They give you fusion signatures. Um, but I just don't know any of the details. And uh, if it's a standard sort of fusion, deuterium tritium, you do get these neutrons that are just, you know, a real pain. <laughs> right, right, right. And, so, so which could destroy to... your delicate nano lattice acceleration <laughs> yes yeah and and certainly you know so uh, certainly it feels like something is going to be quite difficult to build and your earlier point was if you can't build it you're not interested um yeah if you don't see a pathway to real deployment why bother right it is fascinating i keep you know i keep 
I would say, you know, uh, a tenth of a tenth of a percent of my attention on it, just in case we're all surprised. Uh, but well, look, I'm with you. It's like small modular reactors, you know, on the scale of things, a couple of billion a year is a nothing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, but don't hold your breath. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and and uh, coming to the, the kind of the role of, of science and, um, you know, you continue to do research while you were Secretary of Energy. And I remember a paper which was on um, uh, energy efficiency and standards, the, the, uh, right the impulse that standards gave to, and how much actually they had saved. You know, people were saying, oh, you know, we can't increase the energy efficiency standards, the cafe standards for vehicles because it'll cost too much. And I think you produced a very compelling argument that said, no, it doesn't, it actually has saved how yes. many, I, you'll probably remember the number, how many hundreds yes. of millions. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> it, it, we, we looked at refrigerators, washing machines, uh, central air conditions and, and uh, air conditioning. And you always thought, and when you put in an appliance standard that uh, the cost of the appliance will go up, but the cost of ownership will go down. In fact, before you can mandate a standard, efficiency standard, you have to show that the cost of ownership will go down, right. which is energy plus the uh, first time cost. Uh, what, and then we looked at statistics of those four things. We just, you know, no theory, just statistics. And what we found is that refrigerators the cost curve kept on going down and there were little blimps, but it still would go back to the trend line of the cost continuing to go the original the capital cost. This is the but the energy costs were going down much further. Okay. What was surprising was the other three, it actually, the cost, uh, the first cost took a knee every time there was a standard, it actually started to go down faster. And it turned out, you know, why would, why would the cost, uh, the first cost of an air conditioner go down? Because they had to be more efficient. So the engineers took a blank sheet of paper, designed a, a better compressor. Right. Which meant a smaller compressor, which meant a more efficient compressor. But this is straight out of Amory Lovins 30 years ago. You design for energy efficiency and the capital cost goes down because that's the only way to get there. And you and and uh, I, I don't know whether he proved it. I suspect uh, you did a well, much more robust job. <laughs> he was arguing, he was Amory was arguing on a kind of a, you know basis of well, look look at what you have to do, but you can go back and look at the statistics and yes. say, no, this is okay. So so it it is shocking, and so. I don't know, we thought this was a great discovery. It was a discovery. We submitted to the uh, journal Science, uh, got rejected. Uh, it, they did send it out to review. And uh, one of the reviewers said, this is amazing, you should be published. The other two, I'll paraphrase it said, I don't care what these people say, um, it doesn't work. So I said, what, what do you mean it doesn't work? And they said, well, um, you know, th these are free market economists. So it is impossible <laughs> to, to make a regulation, make the first cost cheaper. And you're right. <laughs> it's if there the was a, so in these economies, if there's a $10 note lying on the floor, somebody would have picked it up, they'll say. Right. That's right. And so, so then my reaction was, and so science decided not to publish it. And I said, well, okay, economists are different than physicists. 
In fact, all the co-authors, we were all ex-physicists or physicists, and said, it doesn't matter be what these people say, we know it's not true. And said, ah, so they don't believe in data, they believe in religion. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was put in mind of this, the people who were actually ill with COVID, but telling the doctors and nurses that COVID didn't exist. Yes. And I was put in mind of at the uh, liberation of the concentration camps in Europe at the end of the Second World War, that the Allies took German citizens into those camps to show them, knowing, maybe they knew human nature better than we do today, knowing that if they did not do that, that it would be denied in the future. I have no idea what the equivalent is, but it just, I, I don't know where we go, but that's, I mean, to me, that's the sort of thing that's needed to confront or truth and reconciliation or something. Well, so, so what happened in Germany? Uh, what happened is uh, the vast majority of people in Germany realized what they had been doing during Hitler's era was just, it happened and, and it's never gonna happen again. Uh, and for since World War II until recently, it was it was it was by recently I mean you know in the last half dozen years the neo Nazis are coming back, hmm. and so so and I would talk to my German colleagues I mean born in Germany now here you know I work with them in San Francisco said no no this will never happen. Uh, this is maybe four or five years ago, before you see this resurgence as a reaction to immigration, as a reaction to many, many things, world trade, you know, your, ec your economic life isn't getting better. Uh, so, so I think, but science, you know, listening to science as having something that's should be not political, it is not political, uh, but a, a basis of facts that one can then try to do something about. We're now talking about many, many other things in society that are part of this. You know, you, you can debate politically how much universal health care you want or not, okay? Uh, you shouldn't debate what that everybody, you can't pretend that everybody has access to uh, health care or has equal justice under the law in the US, for example. You just can't pretend that. But yet there's a whole sorts of people who say, no, 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 they're privileged. Hmm. Look at all the pressure, all the politically correct talking going on and you know, the, they're advantaged over me. Hmm. Affirmative action, all this other stuff. And so, so there are many, many things that we have to figure out how to, how to bridge the gap. Now, what happened in Germany is there was an admission of guilt, a yeah. national admission of guilt. Okay, that we did something very bad. We don't want it to happen again. And so it's kind of the first, so, you know, uh, President of the United States has not admitted he had anything, did yeah. anything wrong. It's very Either hard, with his, hard to yeah. see the wound being cauterized anytime soon. So on that, on that note, maybe we should draw uh, 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 to, towards a close um, with a final question uh, about climate change. Are you optimistic at the end of all of this, with all of the societal you know, issues we've just touched on, but also the science and the engineering that we've talked about most of this uh, conversation, um, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Oh, but that one, I am truly uh, bimodal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But well, look, we got lithium out of seawater. There's going to be plenty of lithium for all of us. <laughs> I, I would say um, that um, we are going to go over 450. We're going to go over 550. We may go over 600. Um, will we? It, mother, you know, necessities, mother invention. This is going to be the mother of all necessities. Uh, the scientists and engineers and people will figure out something. It's going to come a little later, much more expensive. Just like the US is now about 400,000 deaths going to 500,000 by March, the world 2 million, there will be a lot of pain, suffering and death yeah. and social disorder due to climate change. Uh, but now having said that, does that mean that 10% uh, of the United States isn't going to die of COVID? No. Um, I, I hope 1% doesn't die, but we're in the kind of tenths of a percent now. Right. Um, and so, so I think, you know, lots of bad, lots of social disruption. If, if 5 million refugees have made Europe much less stable politically, uh, to, uh, and, and putting up walls and fences, I don't know what 50 million or 500 million will do, but I'm pretty sure that's the scale of the amount of climate refugees we'll be looking at in the coming half century. Hmm. And, and, that's, and you cannot isolate yourself from, from uh, dislodgement of desperation yeah. at that scale. No society is rich enough or have enough walls to kind of isolate itself from that. So Sorry, those things, yeah. you, so, it, so in the end, you know, will we prevail? I hope so, uh, but, but it's not, with, not without a lot of unnecessary suffering. So if I can paraphrase in summary, then it's um, optimistic about the technology wrenching changes and very difficult changes, but ultimate sort of survival of civilization and the human race, not in question. Is that a fair summary? Yes, yes. But, but you know, you can, but, you know, uh, it's more than discomfort. There will be a lot of climate deaths. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and, uh, and the real issue is whether the economic system will hold together. Yeah. Right. If if you look at Bill Nordhaus's uh, analysis of you know the economist at Yale got a Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, where he thinks that the proper price on carbon, not carbon dioxide, but carbon, is is hundreds of dollars a ton, uh, based on his models, which he invented for and that was recognized with the Nobel Prize, uh, I think. Um, uh, he's become very much in the camp of very concerned about climate change, but but is kind of this realist is that you know is society going to really you know what price are they going to pay? Um, yeah. If you're willing to double energy prices, we can go a long way today, hmm. right? Uh, and and uh, and I think technology will get it to the point where it be parity. But that'll take longer. Agriculture still a big deal. We have to figure out agriculture. Agriculture, grazing land, more than electricity generation in terms of carbon emissions, and yet agriculture can be part of the solution. 
So, but, but you know, Nordhaus is sort of talking about, well, you know, where human society will kind of say three degrees is okay. You know, we're in the, at the moment, there's this sort of phony discussion about one and a half degrees. My suspicion is that we can get to somewhere around two degrees because I am, hmm. I suppose I'm just an optimist. I'm just a, I, I'm a technical optimist. And I also believe that uh, in the end, I hope some of those social trends will self-correct a little bit faster than 600 parts per million. I'm, I'm hoping yeah. we'll get there earlier. But who knows? There's a little book that came out, I don't know, half a dozen years ago. There's a little asterisk somewhere. And these projections and the costs and everything are assuming that the societal, this, you know, the, the economy doesn't collapse. The society doesn't collapse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so if you go back and look at, pick up that book and look at it, there's this little, I mean, it's this, it, you, you're assuming that uh, economic stability yeah. is maintained. And I think that's right. And certainly all the work that I've done is on the assumption that, you know, you drive down the cost of capital. Well, guess what? You need capital markets, which means you need civilization to survive for that to work. I, I want to thank you for the time you've spent with me today. And uh, and actually, you know, uh, over the years, you've always been very generous in talking with me. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure that we're going to find a lot of people very interested in this conversation. So uh, I, I wish you all the best with your research. And I hope that in a year or so, I'll be able to come visit you again in Stanford and, uh, and get an update on, on one, two, three, four, five or six of those different um, irons that you've got in the fire. Okay, well, it's been lovely talking with you and uh, you know, good luck on editing this, <laughs> this down to whatever size you... We, we'll probably just put it straight out there because it's such a great conversation. All right, <laughs> all right, and anyway, Mark, great to see you again. I, I wish you all the best, stay, and stay um, safe. You too. So that was Stephen Chu, Nobel Prize winner, Secretary of Energy, Professor of Physics and Physiology, and Master of Everything from the Nanoscale to the Societal Trend. My guest next week on Cleaning Up is an old business school friend of mine, Claire O'Neill. Claire is a former Conservative MP and Minister of State for Energy and Clean Growth. She's now Managing Director for Climate Change at the WBCSD, that's the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, which convenes global businesses to work on issues around sustainability. Please join me this time next week for a conversation with Claire O'Neill.